Hi, everybody. My name is Justin Hart. I'm the creator, producer, writer, and narrator of Telehelp. We've been doing this show for about two and a half years now, and like any podcast, you tend to feel things around. You tend to see what works, what doesn't work, and especially when it comes to shows of a historical nature, like we tend to be, because we talk about TV history, sometimes when making an episode, certain things wind up falling by the wayside. In the case of the episode that you're about to hear, a lot of things wound up falling by the wayside, and truth be told, I only have myself to blame. And... Let me give you a little bit of context here. This episode was about a 1990 pilot to a Fox, a potential Fox sitcom called The Ghost Rider. It starred Anthony Perkins of Psycho fame, and a lot of great talent winds up making this program. And one of those talents happens to be the show's creator, Alan Spencer. When we posted the episode on Halloween, we thought, okay, it's just another show that wound up getting whatever it was that it was getting. But then we started getting some comments on our Facebook feed. In fact, we've got angry comments on our Facebook feed, and whenever angry stuff winds up happening, there's a possibility that we may have screwed things up here and there. In fact, that's exactly what we did. I was hearing from a number of commenters that we got some information wrong about the show's production, and... After looking it up a little bit, we realized that, yes, we did screw a thing or two up. We screwed things up so badly that one of the comments wound up getting the attention of the show's creator, Alan Spencer. And just moments ago, uh, I just finished having a conversation with Mr. Spencer, and everything that he said to me was correct, but, you know, I'm, I was apologizing to him as much as I can about this, because... Here at Telehealth, we try very much to be as accurate as we possibly can with background information, because we don't want to just review a show without finding out stuff that happened behind the scenes. Now, in this case, there was information that fell by the wayside that I did not find and was not able to search in time, so there are going to be things in this episode that are patently wrong. And I even asked Mr. Spencer to, uh, if it'd be possible to just take down the episode altogether, and he said to me, don't do that, because he was never a big believer in censorship. So we compromised a little bit, and that's why you're hearing this disclaimer right now, because I do insist on pointing out that we blew it. There's no right or wrong way around it. We blew it. And we do apologize to those who heard the episode initially. We apologize to Mr. Spencer and his crew. We apologize to anybody who was a fan of Anthony Perkins. And please keep in mind, you know, we are very much a show about criticism. There's going to be some things about the shows that we review that we like and some of the stuff that we don't like. We just reviewed this one particular show because it was a TV pilot and it was themed around ghosts and it was scheduled for Halloween, so you, know, you kind of have to fault the stars in alignment there. But it's no excuse. It is absolutely no excuse for being inaccurate. I kind of feel a little silly saying that right now because, again, Mr. Spencer insists that the episode stays the way it is. He doesn't, he, we, he even said that a disclaimer wasn't even necessary, but I feel it's necessary just because there's still a lot to learn from just making a podcast in general. I'm, I'm still relatively new to all of this, and it's only through the mistakes that are made that 
we can only do better from there. So my apologies for stuttering and being nervous and everything, but I, I really do want to give all of you guys out there the best show that I could possibly give you, and if at any time whatsoever we make a mistake as big as the mistakes that you're about to hear in this episode, which, again, we could have edited, but Mr. Spencer insisted, leave it alone, and all that stuff. So, with that in mind, again, apologies to Mr. Alan Spencer, and we thank you, by the way, for uh, for letting us know exactly what we did, and also the people that initially responded to the original post, even though was a little disheartening to see some of those comments. It was still constructive criticism, and we can only do better next time around, and we certainly hope for that. And on that much of a brief introduction, here's Telehealth. In the 1990s, the people who brought you such children's classics like Sesame Street, 321 Contact, and Square One TV, among others, decided to go in a new direction, one that would cater to slightly older children, preferably teens and tweens, while at the same time teach them about literacy, problem-solving through mysteries, and real-world issues that were happening at the same time. PBS struck gold when, in 1992, the series Ghostwriter debuted. Its combination of education, entertainment, and realistic depictions of both New York City, their youth, and their culture made the show a big hit for both PBS and the Children's Television Workshop. But was it the perfect kids' show? We'll find out as... Uh-oh. What do they want now? Hey, I'm just starting the show. Stop reading. You got the wrong script. I do? You know, I was kind of curious why I was ready to talk about actual good TV. I thought you said the boss doesn't make any mistakes. No, the boss didn't do that. It's a problem with our mailroom. We're implementing some of the ideas that Postmaster Louis DeJoy is trying out on the surface. I guess you could say they're working. But I've got the wrong script. How's that working? Huh, you got me. I never really dabbled in bureaucracy anyway. Anyway, the other place upstairs has a copy of the show you're gonna cover today. If you can just send me that ghostwriter script through the hex machine, I'll switch it out. Hex machine? (laughs) Yeah, it's like a fax machine. But evil. Well, <laughs> eviler. Very well. Okay, stand by for your replacement. Got it? I'm not sure. The script of this one still says Ghostwriter on it. Really? That's not right. What does it say inside? Let's see. Griffin at the door! Griffin at the door! Yeah, I think you gave me a copy of How Did This Get Made's episode on Ghost Rider, Spirit of Vengeance, you know, with Nicolas Cage. Ah, I see. Send it back. I think I know which one to send. 
got it now? <laughs> this still says Ghost Rider, but at least it's still spelled with a W. Well, this better be it. I don't have anything else. And everybody who's got mixed up is spoken for. Hang on, there's a cassette tape attached to this. Uh, let me just give this a play. Alright. Sounds like you got the right one. Happy Halloween, honey. Wait, 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 wait! What the here does Psycho have to do with ghosts? Unlike impacted wisdom teeth, this is kinda fun. This is Teller Hell. This story begins with a comedic mind who doesn't need an introduction. But god damn it, I'm gonna try anyway. And the winner is Mel Brooks for the producer. Well, I'll just say what's in my heart. The bump, the bump, the bump, the bump. To go over the entirety of Mel Brooks's contributions to both TV, film, and comedy in general would be equal parts time-consuming and insulting to do. The man is a legend, and boy does he deserve it. In 1973, Brooks was in the middle of having one of the biggest and most productive years of his career, when he would film two movies that would permanently cement him as the comedy icon of this or any other lifetime. One would turn out to be his biggest commercial success to that point. He rode a blazing saddle, he wore a shining star. And the other wouldn't see a big success financially when it was first released, but it would see some of the biggest critical raves that he would ever see. That movie was Young Frankenstein. There, Wolf. There, Castle. Why are you talking that way? I thought you wanted to. No, I don't want to. Suit yourself. I'm easy. One of the people who appeared in that classic was actor-comedian Marty Feldman, a comedic legend in his own right, who would use the personal setback of the disease Graves' ophthalmopathy to his advantage as his unique facial figures would turn into one of his signatures. One day, while filming part of Young Frankenstein, Feldman noticed that a 14-year-old boy had snuck onto the set, but because of how much of a mischievous streak of his own that he had, Feldman kept the young teen on set as his guest. Fortunately for Marty, and the fact that security was more lenient back then, the boy turned out to be a fan of Feldman's work dating back to his days on the BBC. Thus, a mentorship between the two was created up until the end of the movie's filming. Little did he realize that this teenager would himself become enamored with the world of comedy. The boy's name? Alan Spencer. Spencer used all the teachings of Marty Feldman, among others, to embark on his own comedy career. And after a series of false starts and minor miracles, Spencer would eventually make his mark by 1986 when he created a detective parody series called Sledgehammer. Trust me, I know what I'm doing. Although critically acclaimed and often compared to the work of Mel Brooks, Sledgehammer would become one of those cult classics that would only see a few years on the air. Two to be exact. But if at first you don't succeed, you take your talents to another network. One where, by sheer coincidence, Mel Brooks himself was looking to get back into television with The Nuthouse, the story of a posh New York hotel being run by metaphorical asylum patients. Also by sheer coincidence, it was Brooks who hired Spencer to be the show's co-creator, a mere 15 years after sneaking onto the set of Young Frankenstein. 
In spite of various common bonds and mutual admiration, The Nuthouse got cancelled for almost the same reasons that Sledgehammer did. Because both of these shows, and several others over the years, were comedies that were highly dependent on visual gags, it made things all but impossible for TV viewers to really get invested in what was going on. And if that argument seems a little flimsy for a TV show's cancellation, allow the ghost of Frank Drebin to explain what happened on his own show. Well, the series didn't work because you had to watch it. It sounds funny and sounds dumb, but it was true. You had to pay attention. You couldn't look away. You had to watch that to make sure that you caught the humor or where it was coming from. But Spencer was not to be deterred. Having worked with and learned from some of the greatest minds in comedy, the rest of Hollywood took notice of what Spencer was capable of. And one of those pillars of Hollywood was one who we just can't seem to stop talking about around here lately. That's right. For the third week in a row, we get to talk about one of the many misfires in the history of the Fox network. And for the second time this year, we travel back to that watershed year of 1990, the time when the network had a couple of hits in bloom while they were still hacking away through the briar patch of crap that they had on at the same time. And if you want to listen to where they were by that point, I invite you to listen to our Good Grief episode once again. For those who want to move on, however, the network decided to take a chance on Spencer, as well as an idea that he had up his sleeve that he hoped was less reliant on visual gags like his previous efforts, and more of a traditional sitcom in the same vein as various 1960s classics. Of course, thanks to his time sneaking around on the set of Young Frankenstein, Spencer's idea of a so-called traditional sitcom had a bit of an eerie slant to it. It would be the tale of a widowed horror writer who recently married a woman from her own previous marriage. She, along with her daughter, move into a haunted house where he encounters a case of writer's block, seemingly on a weekly basis. That is, until various ghosts around the house inspire him to come up with more stories. Hilarity ensues. On the surface, and if you pardon the pun, while that concept is certainly unique, the idea of using elements of the afterlife for a quick laugh had been done to death in different ways, whether it be the Munsters, or the Addams Family, or to a lesser extent, 1989's Nearly Departed. So with a concept that's as dead and buried as the bones in the ground, what had to have made this version of the concept a little different, or at the very least eye-catching, was who they would get to play the main role. Fortunately for Spencer, he became good friends over the years with an icon of horror. Much more needs to be said about the late, great Anthony Perkins. Like many actors, Perkins made his bones through various roles on the stage and screen, largely dramatic ones. But it wouldn't be until 1960 when Perkins would wind up getting the role that would not only change his life for the better, but it would also define the rest of his life in a somewhat different way. Of course, I've suggested it myself, but I hate to even think about it. She needs me. It's not as if she were a, a maniac, a raving thing. She just goes a little mad sometimes. We all go a little mad sometimes. Haven't you? As hallowed a role that Norman Bates was to many people, 
Perkins later expressed some regret in playing the role. Not at first, but by the time all the sequels to Psycho came out decades later, Perkins felt that he had fallen into the pitfalls of typecasting. That just because he played one particular part really well, suddenly, those were the only parts that he could play, no matter how much he wanted to flex his acting ability. In his own words, quote, It was frustrating. I had plenty of offers, but not for the lighter roles. The comedy roles I had always felt would be the main strength of my career. Even today, I don't get as many of those offers as I'd like. End quote. Nevertheless, Perkins persisted and would continue to do roles where he would play largely negative and misunderstood characters until his untimely passing in 1992 from AIDS-related pneumonia, a byproduct of the HIV that Perkins contracted two years earlier while starring and directing a Psycho sequel. And don't worry, this doesn't mean that this subject's ineligible, because the show in question took place well before Perkins passed away, so we're good there. But just a few years before that, he knew that he had to give comedy a try. So when Spencer approached Perkins to take on the role of Anthony Strack, Perkins probably realized that he might not have as many chances to do something funny ever again not counting his role in the movie Catch-22 or the one time he hosted SNL in 1976. But I digress. The pilot to this show was filmed in 1989 for the 1990 TV season, but in spite of the relatively good scores it got in audience testing, they ultimately passed on it because of a number of outside factors, which we'll get to in a moment. Unfortunately, because Fox was still straddling the line between a network with some established hits and a network that desperately needed content, the network desperately needed content to fill out their schedule, especially during the summer, when everybody else was in reruns, meaning it was an ample opportunity for Fox to play catch-up. But with a limited number of hits at its disposal, the fledgling network found no choice but to burn off some of the other failed pilots that had earmarked it to air for the 1990 season. This show, to be called The Ghost Writer, was to become the latest in the TV graveyard known as The Summer TV Burnoff Zone. But did it deserve to be there? We'll find out as we go grave digging this Halloween. After the break. I always do what Mother tells me, but I never could eat oatmeal until I found oatmeal raisin crisp. Now this is oatmeal made my way. Crispy flakes with oatmeal, a bit of brown sugar, and loaded with raisins and almonds. Oatmeal raisin crisp. It's scary how good it tastes. Oatmeal crisp, oatmeal raisin crisp. Look, Mother, I'm eating my oatmeal. Now that's a good boy. This week on Telehell's premium content of the Dan.
The only way to listen to Telehell's premium content of The Damned is by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash podcast. For just a few bucks a month, you can listen to our premium content and get some swag along the way. Once again, that's patreon.com slash podcast. And now... Back to this week's torture. August 15th, 1990. Actress Jennifer Lawrence was born, and hopefully didn't trip up the stairs in the process. The movie Parenthood was about to become a TV series for the first, but not the last time. And at 9.30, 8.30 Central, the Fox Network gets to feed us some supernatural table scraps. While I can't fault the show for having credits that are plain and simple, since this is only a pilot, a show with the macabre as its central theme could stand to have a little more frights in there. Of course, the use of spooky stuff on the walls may be a bit of an homage to Norman Bates' taxidermy hobby without actually showing any stuffed animals, but since Universal Pictures wasn't involved here, we'll let that detail slide. Act 1 begins by getting to know the wife and daughter to our eerie family of the 90s. Is something the matter? Yes. This house makes me nervous. And Mr. Strack and his son, plus that weird housekeeper, they all scare me. Cindy, I... Mom, why'd you marry Mr. Strack? He's creepy. I... I think he's like a murderer or something. (laughs) Young lady, where have you gotten this crazy notion that your stepfather is someone to be afraid of? And cue the violins. Hello, dear. Where did you get that axe? (laughs) Up in the attic. I'm thinking of going out and chopping some firewood. I've always found that an enjoyable way to kill a little time. I'm hoping that this is the first, last, and only reference that we're going to be getting involving Perkins' past work. After all, we came here to see him be funny, not dredge out the past. But first, let's get to know the rest of the cast. We've already met Perkins' wife, played by acting mainstay and former Soylent Green furniture piece Lee Taylor Young, as well as their daughter Cindy, played by child actor Juliet Sorcy. And while those two would wind up having seemingly fruitful careers, our next participant, not so much. Miss Blasco, the housekeeper, would be played by an actress named Pam Madison, who would also see a couple minor roles here and there, but would pretty much retire from acting by the end of the 1990s, ultimately passing away in 2015. Which is unfortunate that she never continued acting, because her over-the-topness of the housekeeper role might have been a bit of a saving grace. And what may I ask is happening in my kitchen? Miss Blasco, Elizabeth was just trying to squeeze her daughter a glass of orange juice. Madame? Kitchen duties aren't for the lady of the house. They're for cheap scum, like me. Meanwhile, Norman Bates and his wife try to reach an understanding about the situation with their daughter. Cindy's having difficulty adjusting to our new family, and she also says that she's afraid of you. Elizabeth, it's perfectly natural for a child to be afraid of a new stepfather. (laughs) But darling, you don't understand. Cindy thinks that you might be a, a murderer. Well, that's natural, too. Uh, When I was a boy, I thought my new stepfather was a murderer. What made you stop feeling that way? His acquittal. 
<laughs> evil stepfather, evil mother, same difference, right? But seriously, you're trying to shake off the stigma of playing Norman Bates. Don't be afraid to show off a new dimension of yourself. Cindy finds your housekeeper and your son terrifying as well. My son, Edgar, terrifying? Yes, were you aware that he's constantly telling my daughter that he's the Antichrist? <laughs> well, every boy needs a role model. <laughs> yeah, my boss is literally the opposite of Christ in every single way. Trust me, your son does not want to worship them, even though we're all forced to do so down here anyway. Speaking of his son, that's who we get to meet next, played by Joshua John Miller, who would later transition himself from acting to writing, and would also create the long-running Queen of the South for the USA Network. Here, he plays your prototypical Hot Topic customer, black trench coat and everything, and do what moody goth kids do best, stand silently, say nothing, and occasionally try to bite your fellow family members. Hello, Edgar. Dear? <laughs> He's such a rapscallion. Now, Elizabeth, I ask you, does this appear to be two children who don't get along together famously? And Edgar, isn't it wonderful to have little Cindy here to do things too? I mean, with? <laughs> why don't you two go upstairs and play? Mommy, why is God punishing me like this. And as I'm looking at this, I have to wonder, did Alan Spencer get a funny bonectomy? After all, the things that he wrote on Sledgehammer and the Nuthouse were rapid fire, but they were still funny. It kind of worries me that we're not seeing any of his trademark moves here. Yet. Maybe that'll change when Norman Bates starts to experience his first haunting. Elizabeth, it, uh, it feels disrespectful somehow being affectionate in front of my dearly departed first wife. You mean this portrait of the late Mrs. Strack? <laughs> Why do we always refer to dead people as late? <laughs> Why not eternally tardy? An interesting query, I'm sure. But then again, they don't call unborn babies the early, do they? <laughs> Meanwhile, let's check in on the kids, who I'm sure are having all kinds of fun and... Cindy! Mommy! Oh, mommy! Edgar and I were playing hide and seek. And I found him! Well, he certainly wasn't difficult to find. <laughs> let me have a little... Let me have a little man-to-hanged-man talk with the boy. Of course, the kid is okay. He's just hiding behind some furniture. Very clever. Why are you tormenting your sister? She's not my sister. And that other woman you brought here? She's not my mother. She's a stranger, an outsider, a yuppie. Edgar, I have no qualms about disciplining you. Please do. I love to be disciplined. True, you are the only boy who, after spankings, leaves a tip. This is quickly followed by a hilarious decapitation. Edgar, keep away from that, please. Yes, uh, yes, my new marriage makes me happy. Yes, um, of course, I can still write about blood and guts while being extremely happy. And while we don't question whatsoever just how the boy got his head on straight for the next scene, we join the family at dinner, where there's more horror-related awkwardness going down. Cindy, are you enjoying that salad? It's great. The best salad I ever had. Believe me, please. You've got to believe me. 
And really, this should have been the reason that the show was passed on. The fact that it's trying to emulate similarly themed sitcoms from the past, but because the early 90s were supposed to be considered hip and edgy, perhaps they overdid it on the course correction. On the Adams family, the torture that each family member took part in was all in good fun, and in spite of the malicious intent in some of them, it was still somewhat innocent. Kinda had to be for early 1960s TV. Here, it seems to be torture for the sake of torture, probably because the late 80s and early 90s saw an influx of horror films that pretty much desensitized the average viewer. The fact that it's trying to be played for laughs doesn't really help its cause. We then proceed with a dinner, where the housekeeper seems to want to show off her Madeline Kahn impression while cutting a still alive roast pig. <laughs> Interesting. And what do you think of that subpar impression, Ghost of Madeline Kahn? I hated her so much. It, it, the, it, flame, flames, flames on the side of my face, breathing, breath, heaving breaths. As we're nearing the halfway point of the show, we finally get into the actual plot of the episode. Which, by the way, should have been established within the first few minutes instead of capitalizing too much on your star's biggest successes. That's just basic TV pilot 101. Anthony, I demand that you explain your phobia of this portrait. Very well, if you insist. Judith died ten years ago today in this very room. Did she die of natural causes? Yes, she took a nasty fall down that flight of stairs and broke her neck. You call that natural causes? Well, of course. I mean, you take a nasty fall and break your neck, naturally it causes you to die. It was the night of Judith's and my anniversary, and we planned to celebrate the evening by going dancing. Out of nostalgia, Judith donned her original wedding gown, and as I walked through the door, she rushed down the steps to surprise me, tripped, and... Uh, we buried her in that very same gown. My love, what does that have to do with the portrait? Mm, there's an old superstition that when a person dies unexpectedly, their spirit remains somewhere at the scene, restless, troubled, even hostile. Everybody got that? Good! And quite honestly, if they got all that information out of the way early and cut out the goth kid torturing the girl, what would happen next would actually wind up being a lot less jarring. Miss Blasco, this painting is starting to have an unhealthy influence on this family. Help me remove it, please. Madame, you mustn't disturb that portrait. But can't you see? It's managed to capture Mrs. Strack's very soul. But I'm Mrs. Strack. <sighs> Act two begins with the aftermath of touching a portrait that even Dorian Gray would find to be a little much. Elizabeth! What do you think you're doing? I'm saving our marriage! I'm through living in the shadow of another woman! But why? You do it so well! Oh. <laughs> Keep that away from the fire if you're in the mood to burn a painting. There's a Leroy Neiman upstairs. <laughs> Suitable for flaming. Burning this painting. I plan to hang it in another room until such time as everyone here is referring to me as your wife instead of the person in this portrait. 
For those of you playing the home game, the image of Norman Bates's first wife is suddenly missing from the portrait. And it's here where, not gonna lie, an interesting series of visual effects start to take place. Which stands to reason, since the show went out of its way to hire some of the top set designers, practical effect engineers, and special effects gurus to come up with some of the imagery being presented. Everything from skeletons emerging from the staircases to corpses burrowing between graves. But while the visuals are certainly noteworthy for a sitcom pilot, it doesn't really do anything to help the fact that no matter how good the intentions are, this is still supposed to be a sitcom. One whose best attempt to be funny so far is... This. This, this. this can't be the, the, the portrait I was holding. Oh my god. Talk about the classic example of what's wrong with this picture. The haunts continue when. Uh, what's happening? Miss Blasco, should you be wearing an outfit like that in front of young Edgar? Why not? He bought it for me. <laughs> You're really gonna make me question gray areas, aren't you? In case that scene wasn't made clear, they're fucking. They're... They're clearly fucking. The teen goth boy and the housekeeper, dressed in a negligee and probably about 15 years his senior, are clearly an item. Or at least that's the implication based on the body language between the two, even though the video shows that they both emerge from separate rooms. But who cares about that? They're fucking because it wouldn't be a Fox show from the early 90s without some sort of beacon to the libido. Isn't that right, Bud Bundy? No, according to the book, we're not allowed to take any kind of compensation. Even if it's these? <laughs> Didn't say anything about tips. But since that, too, is a throwaway joke that we never get referenced to again, we check back in with all the supernatural activity happening downstairs. Is anybody there? Yes, I'm right behind you. It's too late. She's dead. Oh. Oops, sorry, my mistake. Call the ambulance. Our hero, everybody. To paraphrase a joke by Bill Maher, it wouldn't surprise me if their wedding vows ended, I now pronounce you person of interest and wife. Fortunately, the paramedics show up, one of which would not only give us the funniest line of the entire episode, but would later go on to shape the world of comedy in his own right. I'm just going to need you to sign right here, Mr. Strat. Thanks for the autograph, man. I love your stuff, man. This is great. You know, I haven't forgotten about you, mother I have not forgotten about you. But to be fair, the world wasn't quite ready for Larry Wilmore just yet. Getting back to the story, the events of moments ago was enough to send the teen goth Lothario out into the home's backyard cemetery, just go with it, uh, where the first Mrs. Strack is buried. A wise man named Hippocrates once said, through tragedy we learn. All roads of learning begin in darkness and go out into the light. Now, it's taken 10 years of darkness for me to learn that light is Elizabeth. I loved your mother, but the reality is there's no bringing her back, and according to all reports, I'm very much alive, so while I'm still here, don't you love me enough to 
wish me a little happiness? Yeah. Love you very much, Dad. <laughs> you know, this isn't exactly my idea of visiting a theme park. And were it not for the fact that the laughs in this show were few and far between, and the characters seemed to come off as borderline sociopaths with zero charm whatsoever, this was a genuinely touching moment. Unfortunately, because of just how little of an impact the characters have made in general, I can't exactly find myself sympathizing with them, no matter how deep they're aiming. And as long as we're still on this scene, I should probably point out that, for full disclosure, the show that I'm looking at right now is what's known as a final copy, aka the one that makes it to air on TV. Believe it or not, there's actually another version of this pilot that's available on YouTube, what's known as a work print copy, which features deleted scenes that were either cut for time, irrelevance, or simply not fitting in with anything else. It's on this work print that we're introduced to yet another character, but unfortunately, this had to be cut for time purposes. This character is a graveyard groundskeeper named Paul Bearer. Not that Paul Bearer. Though, given the WWE's penchant to sue, I'm surprised they never did. Anyway, here's that lost scene with the lost character. This isn't exactly my idea of visiting a theme park. <laughs> Mine either. I'm Paul, the groundskeeper of this place. Who are you? I'm Anthony Strack, and this is my son, Edgar. Forgive us if we were trespassing. Anthony Strack? I'm your biggest fan. Your books have really blown my mind over the years. I can see that. Hey, you want to go on a tour of the premises? I can show you the grave of a guy that drowned in a vat of peanut butter. And when they buried him, he stuck to the roof of the coffin. It sounds delightful. But we really must be going. Excuse us. On second thought, maybe time wasn't the reason that they had to cut him. Sorry, Paul. Eventually, Norman Bates brings home his son, and things are just about ready to wrap up, when suddenly we're haunted by, I'm not shitting you here, the most baffling exchange ever put to a TV screen between Norman Bates and a skeleton puppet which is probably where Craig Ferguson got some inspiration when he first came to America. And I'm doing my very best to condense everything down to the irreducible minimum here. Judith, you died, and I've remarried. You mean that other woman, the one who manhandled my portrait. She isn't anything special. What's she got that I haven't got? A pulse. <laughs> Judith, listen to me. Elizabeth is my wife now. She, she fills a void in my life, the void you left. I guess we have some irreconcilable differences. You're alive, I'm not. I'm truly dead. How else are we going to say farewell? I know. Judith, may I have this dance? Go slow. It's been a while. Sorry, I'm a little rusty on my twirls. I guess it's time for me to go. Goodbye, Anthony. 
take care of my little Edgar. Your new wife is a lucky woman. Judith, truly, rest in peace. I shall have a good life. Mr. Strack, did I hear something? Uh, nothing, uh, nothing out of the ordinary, Cindy, just, just the ending to my latest book. And quite honestly, I can't think of a better way to end this pilot. Except for the fact that the work print copy has this extra piece of footage at the end. You loved my new manuscript. Yes. <laughs> yes, I think The Haunted Portrait is a terrific title, too. Uh-huh. The chapter where the dead wife came back scared you, eh? And you were touched by the ending where they danced together. Well, I'm, uh, I'm pleased. <laughs> you want to know how I come up with all these bizarre ideas? Well, I can't give away my secrets, but Leonard, as I've told you countless times before, I'm no different from any other author. I write from experience. <laughs> and while I'm sure that this show does have its fans and defenders, of which there's a surprisingly large amount online, I can see all the reasons why Fox would wind up passing on this show. And for that, we must now go a-haunting through our nine circles. Limbo, lust, gluttony, greed, wrath, heresy, violence, fraud, treachery! Blatantly obvious, this was a pilot that crashed. So not unlike the many elements of the undead that we've seen here today, this too winds up in limbo. As for the show itself, Originally, before Fox ever got its hands on it, this pilot was actually meant to be for the ABC network. Stands to reason, since Alan Spencer was already employed by them when the development for this show was approved. But after realizing what kind of subject matter would be involved here, especially the scenes involving various images of comedic violence, and the questionably lusty relationship between the teen son and the housekeeper, ABC treated the show like a hot potato and threw it over to Fox, where they thought it would fit in better. Which it was not able to do, not because of the content, but because there were times when the show tried a little too hard to emulate the success of similar horror and supernaturally themed sitcom predecessors. Hell, there was already a sequel to The Monsters on in syndication that was doing reasonably well. And anything else that came on afterwards kind of felt like a pale imitation, no matter how unique their vision would be. So, while the show avoids heresy for at least being its own thing, this show still gets grazed with fraud for inadvertently trying too hard to be the other things. All in all, this show was well-intentioned, but in the end, the ghostwriter didn't stand a ghost of a chance. God damn it, I hate myself for that line. The ghostwriter earns four out of nine circles of telehell. And after sitting through three Fox failures in a row, I think it's time that we fixed ourselves a drink. So with that, come with me to Hell's Literal Kitchen, where we're going to make ourselves a Ghostwriter-themed cocktail. Okay, students, we've got your basic ingredients. We've got vodka and bitters for texture, of course, followed by several healthy doses of The Munsters, Adam's Family, The Psycho Movies, and Sledgehammer. Now, let's start with only the skin of The Adam's Family, because on that show, everybody in the family actually got excited over the tortures, while on this show, people were actually freaking out over the exact same thing. Now, 
next, we're going to grind off some of the zest from the Psycho movies for a hint of flavor, because as long as you have the main actor from it, you might as well keep exploiting that flavor even though it's been known for other things in its career. Third, take your slab of the monsters and try to incorporate some of the visual elements that was the secret success of the show, and be sure you throw away all the parts where it actually was sharp satire. Let all three elements blend for a couple of seconds before adding about... a gallon of vodka and a pinch of bitters just to make sure the concoction pours smooth. And the final step, keep mixing everything until you're bored with what you're looking at, and then smash it into little pieces with a sledgehammer. And that is how you make a Ghost Rider. Bon Appetit, and Happy Halloween! Next time on Telehell, our first ever Patreon episode request. One that hopes to take down one of the most unnecessary moments in the life of a TV classic. After 15 years, we're finally rescued. 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 Until then. If it's not in Telehell, it's not worth a damn. The part of the devil's secretary was played by Joan Bishop. Telehell was written, produced, edited, and narrated by me, Justin Hart. All clips used in this program are protected under the Fair Use Doctrine of the U.S. Copyright Act of 1976, and all clips used come courtesy of their respective companies and owners. Some of the music used in this program comes courtesy of YouTube and their audio library service. Telehell is a production of Horton Road and is distributed by Libsyn. Now that everybody is getting mysterious chemicals injected into their arms, that can only mean one thing. It's almost safe to socialize with people again. So why not get a head start on that and follow us on our social feeds? Twitter and Facebook, both at Telehell Podcast. By the way, shows like these aren't cheap. Do what you can and can what you do at patreon.com slash Podcast. Mm-hmm.